Welcome to the Chicana Motherworks Podcast. We are a collective of Chicana PhD mother scholars, artists, and activists. We created Chicana Motherwork to amplify the lived experiences of mothers of color within and outside academia. Together, as a Chicana Motherwork Collective, we theorize, write, organize, mother, and create spaces for communal healing and care out of our shared belief that the labor of mothering is a transformative act. Porque sin madres no hay revolución. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is Christine Vega from Chicana Motherwork Collective. Um, we're recording this beautiful Sunday with a very special guest, Ana Castillo. Um, and we want to say thank you to Juanita for having us in her awesome, beautiful home. Um, we also want to start this podcast. It's been a long time for us since we've come together to um, to talk about, you know, the things that we've been doing at Chicana Motherwork. Um, so we're really happy to be back um, together. Yvette, we miss you. Michelle, we're really excited to see you pretty soon. We miss you too. Um, we want to start this dedication. You know, we're we're in the, the first week of March, March uh, 5th today, 2017. It's been a couple of months. So we want to offer this, this podcast to uh, many of the young people of color who have recently passed away, including three young black trans women in Louisiana. We honor Elias Rodriguez from Somar that got swept away in the rushing waters during a storm in Pacoima. And that's my community. So the community of the San Fernando Valley is, um, has responded in a really beautiful way to support his parents, his mother, um, Paola and Sergio. So we stand in solidarity and offer a breath of remembering Elias and all the young trans folks who passed away as now our ancestors we also want to acknowledge and stand in solidarity with the families who are being torn apart due to the administration's aggressive deportation policies, including Guadalupe Garcia de Rayos, who was violently taken away from her family in Phoenix, Arizona, early last month. And with that, we stand in solidarity. We remember, we say their names um, and honor them, that we have a lot, a lot to look forward to and a lot of fighting to do um, as communities. And we stand in solidarity with those mamas and the children who are being torn apart. Thank you, Christine. Uh, we are excited to welcome you, all our listeners, to our show. And it is an honor to welcome Ana Castillo, uh, our Shiro, in so many ways. And it's, it's just amazing to have you uh, with us. I wanted to tell you all, I'm sure she needs not a, a long introduction, but her her work is so uh, has so much breath that I wanted to share a little bit about her. Um, of course, she's a celebrated and distinguished poet, novelist, short story writer, essayist, editor, playwright, translator, independent scholar, and a chingona chicana. <laughs> uh, she was born and raised in Chicago, and her writings have been the subject of numerous scholarly investigations and publications. Among her award-winning, best-selling titles, um, are the novels So Far From God, The Guardians, and Peel My Love Like an Onion, among her poetry is the book I Ask the Impossible, and of course, uh, her foundational book on Chicana feminism, Massacres of the Dreamers, published in 1995, which was seminal to most of our work mm -hmm. as uh, mama scholars here in the academy. Ana Castillo holds an MA from the University of Chicago and a PhD from the University of Bremen, Germany in American Studies, and an honorary doctorate from Colby College. She has received many awards and accolades for her work, notably the American Book Award 
from the Before Columbus Foundation for her first novel, and won the 2013 uh, American Studies Association Gloria Anzaldúa Prize to Independent Scholars. Today, we're going to be discussing her latest novel, Black Dove, published in 2016, and get insight from her on today's political climate um, and environment for mothers and Chicana feminists. Thank you for being with us today. Yes, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So um, we have a lot of questions. <laughs> so we're very, we're very excited when we were um, planning and discussing the themes that we wanted to talk about for today. So we have a question about um, your newest memoir, Black Dove, which we read. Um, it was published last year, on 2016, on Mother's Day. I remember the, the date because it was significant. Um, it also happens to be my birthday. <laughs> and I'm also a mom. So yeah. It's, but, um, but, it, but it's a special day um, for you know, the Mexican Mother's Day. Um, and because the subject, uh, a lot of it is about uh, your Chicana mother and your relationship with your son. Um, so in your new work, you talk about being a queer Chicana single mother to a brown boy. Um, and we talked about this a little bit before the recording. Um, we were talking about um, the fears that we have as Chicana mothers, women of color mothers, um, if we're raising boys, if we're raising sons. And um, for Ana Castillo in her memoir, she shares about how her fears kind of materialized um, when her son was incarcerated. And um, so we wanted to ask about how Chicana mothers can disrupt um, disrupt uh, this kind of way that Chicana mothers are labeled and blamed and criminalized in US society. There's a point in the novel where you said you knew that you would be blamed because mothers are always blamed for mm -hmm what happens to our children, especially brown children, marginalized peoples. So, um. Well, thank you. I was, um, I, I always believe in writing what you need to write. And um, my son's uh, spiral down in his late 20s was one of the hardest things to see as a mother. I felt that I had gotten home free. You know, he, I, as a single mother, Raising him on my own, um, I separated and divorced from his father. My son was still a toddler. Um, he moved around. My son was always with me. He moved around with me around the country as I was taking residency. So he, many times he was living on campuses. I did everything that I could as far as putting him in um, good schools, as they say. He went through. He was in the international baccalaureate program in Chicago, where we went back to where I was taking care of my mother at the time and. He went to straight into university at DePaul University. There was never a misbeat in his education. Um, he got the opportunity with me to travel. Of course, we, you know, we went to um, Europe. Uh, we had been to Mexico. He studied in Mexico, so he had, you know, all all the opportunities that a that a Latina single mother with some education and and you know where I prioritize education would have. Um, what I got to realize as he uh, reached his late teens, um, somewhere around 17, 16 years old, he graduated high school at 17, is that he began, I began to realize that he was living a dual life. One was the life that he had at home with me in our apartment, our family of two. Um, I, I, I'll say that I didn't have much input from his father, although he knew his father. His father lived in another state, raising another family. Uh, so uh, he did know he had a father, and he did have a relationship with the father, but the father did not, was an act of supporting him, 
and certainly didn't uh, support him uh, financially in any way. So I was, you know, uh, the sole supporter. And so he, res my son always had that respect for me of who I am. And um, uh, he uh, would, you know, go to school, perfect attendance, good grades, never fail the class. Um, I, I made sure when I saw him around uh, turning 16 that he didn't need to study as much in his program. I said, well, if you have some time on your hands, when I found out that he was maybe going after school, like, you know, started getting into graffiti, and this is the, in, in Chicago, this is big. I said, well, you got some time on your hands, you're going to have to go get a job. He wasn't supposed to have a job because he's in this program, but since he seemed to be doing all right, so he went, and so he had a job Monday through Friday after school till 9 p.m. He went to school every single day, worked on Saturdays, never failed a class, and yet he still had this dual life, somehow found this time to be involved in graffiti. So the tr the only trouble that I recognized that he was getting in as a teenager was being picked up by the Chicago cops and, you know, doing, and it's not the only trouble, it's like, it's, it's trouble, you know, to be picked up by the Chicago police for, you know, spray painting certain places and getting on trains. Well, what happened was, as time moved on, is I began to realize that my son is living a dual life, and one of the one life is the life at home. He respects me. He does. He has to do housework. He has to earn. He has a job. He, you know, he has to, you know, make his grades, which he does. He was playing cello. Uh, first day, first day of school, freshman year, he went. He'd never taken cello before. He went audition. He got in the string orchestra. So then he's also playing cello around the corner. But in wow. the evening, it, right? I mean, it's like dual, per, dual life, and and the evenings or when he'd had a chance. And Chicago has a curfew. I grew up in a city in which uh, anyone under 18 years old has a curfew. We can't be out in the street after during the week after 10:30 or after and weekends 11:30. I don't know if people know that, but there's a there's a curfew, and you get picked up by the cops if you're a kid um, or look like a young kid. So he had a curfew. So even that, he's not out late. Never, I never worried, but I did worry about that. That I started to see that when the police call and they have detained him. But by the time he's in his early 20s, and now he's shifted effortlessly into his college of choice, which was in Chicago, DePaul University. He did a double major there. But at this point, he's full force in graffiti and hip-hop culture and is somewhat politicizing some of what has been going on with him in this dual life against the system and against the Chicago police and the authority and so on and so forth. So what happens, and he's a brown-skinned young man, he's definitely a male of color, and you get targeted, and you get targeted if there's two or more males in a car, you will get stopped by the Chicago police. If you're walking down the street with a backpack and it's after three o'clock in the afternoon, you will get stopped by the police. So this is what was happening, and um, at some point in his late teens, um, you know, he had never been in a, a in a in a fight, a fist fight that I knew of uh, for sure, and had never. And we had Latin kings, we had gangs in our area, in our neighborhood. I dealt with them, confronted them. We had a lot of drugs in our neighborhood. I dealt with that, really just happening right in the back door. Uh, we were in that atmosphere um, in Chicago, but he, I never had any problem with him with any of that. And one morning I wake up and I go to call him to get him out of bed to go to class and his face is all swollen, he's, he's all beaten up. And I finally got it out of him that at the train stop, which is two blocks from our house, the police who were just standing there and I'd see them myself and I'd see them stop 
and search young people of color, usually black, but anybody, um, they were uh, try to do that with him. And because he had a half a joint in his pocket, he foolishly thought, well, I'll just ignore the cop and keep going. And they caught up to him and they beat him up. They did not arrest him. They did not report it. And then and there was nowhere for me to go. I was born and raised in Chicago. I already know I had my own dealings with police when I was a teenager. And I certainly knew that unless I get a lawyer and I'm prepared to go and, and make a big deal out of this, there's not much that I'm going to be able to do about that except draw attention to my son and we, who knows what would happen, what would be the result of that once they targeted you. I had those experiences as a teenager when they picked me up you know, catching you after curfew, and then they take you home. And then I, and one experience that I had, uh, the police, um, uh, you know, my father was, you know, who's this guy? It was a plainclothes guy. Who's this guy with my beautiful, you know, 15-year-old daughter? Why? What, what's he doing with her? So he got, so my father got, you know, sort of, you know, huffy about it with the cop, too. And so the cop said, well, we're going to keep an eye on her. So then you're in trouble that way because then they start looking for you to you know to do something so it's a so what happens with the young person of color but in this particular case we're talking about single mother raising a a brown boy uh, we have to recognize that as much as we do and can instill in our young men um, they are living the reality of the world outside our our families houses and when they leave your home it's no longer you know mijito Mijo querido, lindo, mi rey, that I have in my house is just, you know, knows his manners and wears his little tie to the family dinners and knows how to behave and pulls the chair out and, is, you know, kisses people in the cheek when he meets them and does all the things que tienen educación en su casa. Now, when they step, the minute they step out the door, what they are to the rest of the world is a man of color. And a man of color without money, if he had money, he'd have a chauffeur. I'm talking about money. He'd be getting into a sports car, a Lamborghini. This is the kind of money I'm talking about. I'm not saying, like, not money that he doesn't have any food or he's on the street. And so they don't have any real backup economic means. And so they really are, they really do become having to defend themselves in that atmosphere. They learn how to posture, and they do become very, um, very vulnerable to that. So we always talk about the angry Chicana. Well, we, we haven't had the to the fullest extent, the, the angry Chicano, the angry male of color conversation. And I think it's critical as a single mother and as a single brown mother to have that because yes, indeed, um, when he uh, committed a, a, a crazy uh, robbery unarmed, uh, unarmed uh, I think he was ready to just eject uh, he was supporting his young family. He had a job. There was no explanation for it. Um, I was out of the country. I was speaking on human rights in Europe, at, in Italy. It was the year of human rights in Europe. And I, I just, uh, mother's instinct, I felt there was something wrong. He was head of his family. I just felt he'd been so angry lately. So, uh, there was just something going on with him. The first news that I got when I returned home was, um, you know, a bunch of emails, including from my attorney that, I had to call and I found out that he was arrested. It was very shocking. I was very exhausted, I was really, very tired. I was, my heart was broke. I was in denial, I couldn't even believe it. And the first conversation I'd had with his father in 15 years, that's what he said to me, it was my fault. That night on the phone, that it had been my fault because I had not 
allowed him to raise my son. And he was raising uh, the three boys of uh, the woman he married. And I felt that my son, because of my priority with education, was better, although my son was always welcome to spend any time he wanted with his father, including going to live with him if he wanted to. I pointed that. He said, it doesn't matter. So uh, the very first day, the very, right out of the gate, um, that um, that was the uh, the attitude. I had felt so proud as a Chicana, as a single woman, and as a woman who identified as um, not necessarily heterosexual. I uh, had relationships with men, with women. My son was aware of that. I had a lot of gay male friends in our atmosphere. So I felt so proud of being having this progressive household. Um, you know, this was decades ago that, you know, once he finished university, finished before he was 22 years old, he did a double major. I was, you know, I take a big, de deep sigh. You think, well, there, yeah. I did it. Mm -hmm. And against what everybody said, they all said, you can't do this without a man. And mm -hmm. I was so happy. I thought to myself, I did it. And when that happened, and it was he wasn't on my watch anymore. He was head of his own family. He's over 21 years old. So I had to learn that. And I learned that through a great deal of pain uh, to not blame myself. But I was blamed immediately, even though he had made a decision as an adult man to do this. It was never done during the time that he was living under my roof, as they say. Yeah, and I think particularly just everything you're saying just resonates so much with us. And um, I know particularly um, Michelle and I are both uh, single moms. So um, doing not only being a Chicana mom, but a Chicana single mom has its only has its particular challenges or li living in, um, you know, just you and your son, you know, one parent household. And um, I don't know if you wanted to add anything, Michelle, to what um, Anna was sharing. No, I mean, I think that uh, maybe what Judy was going to ask next probably would be important. But in terms of, you know, everything that you're mentioning about the, the lack of support and how you're read, you know, I mean, I think that uh, at one of the first pieces that I wrote about mothering, which is sort of one of the ways that we all came together in this collective was precisely about how I was read as a brown pregnant woman in the academy and then the kinds of uh, responses that uh, people gave me uh, that had all kinds of attachments of um, perceptions of who I was, who I shouldn't be, what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing, you know? And so it resonates absolutely your story. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think it's, uh, for me, uh, my two younger ones, they're boys three and one. And so it's scary just to think about, like, even when you think you're trying hard, trying to take them to, you know, the best goals so that they won't have to face this, you're still going to have those challenges. And it's scary to, the fact that you can't prepare and you're still going to be blamed regardless, you know, whether you take them to a good school or not good school, there's, you can't control the outside world. And, and, um, and that's scary. <laughs> it's, it's it's scary because you try a lot at home, and 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 you're right. It's 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 how they see them outside in the world. It's not it's not your little boy that you raised them to be respectful. It's going to be just a brown male, and and that's what's unfortunate. Um, so our next question was um, uh, actually about the book. Um, if you have a, a particular section you wanted to share or read out loud with us um, and talk a little bit about it, um, 
if, if you have anything. I'm going to read from, um, from the introduction. This introduction actually um, comes from, it, it, it originated with a lecture I was asked to give. I was an endowed chair um, uh, at a university a couple of years ago, and one of the things, and they support the dreamers at this college, and they asked if I would uh, write an address um, to, you know, they have like 500 freshmen to, to talk about immigration. This was uh, 2014. So the editor of this book used part of that introduction, and it sounds like I'm just, who am I talking to? Well, I'm talking actually to this fresh, these students at this university, and they're, you know, decades younger than myself. But what happened was when I started to do this talk, is the way my mind usually works is I start to just go all the way. So what happened was I started to look at the history of immigration in this country. And I'm when I talk about the history of immigration, I'm going into like the... 19th century, um, 200 years ago. But anyway, there's uh, to begin with, I'll just read the first um, uh, part of it. It says, perhaps some of you may come away from this book feeling that my stories have nothing to do with your lives. You may find the interest I've had in my ancestors as they were shaped by the politics of their times irre irrelevant to your own history. My story as a brown bisexual strapped writer and mother constantly scrambling to take care of my work and my child might be similarly inconsequential. However, I beg your indulgence and a bit of faith to believe that maybe on the big scrabble board of life, we will eventually cross ways and make sense to each other. If you reside in the United States, whether you are able to vote or pay taxes, then know that you and I have much more in common than not. Know that we may differ greatly in opinion. But only a handful in the world will make decisions that affect the majority, and the majority includes you and me. If we question what passes for truth or the veracity of any point of view, these days bombarded and overloaded as we are with random sound bites, know also that the knowledge that knowledge sets you free. Knowledge makes you strong. Not scattershot information gleaned off the internet or the opinions of Facebook friends, but checking and cross-checking your resources, going to the source, radical curiosity, that kind of knowledge. It's funny because I wrote this in 2014 and I'm thinking it sounds like today, yeah. 2017. That's actually really uh, great because, you know, we were we were thinking about, as I mentioned, you know, your seminal text, Massacres of the Dreamers, which was written in 1995 at the height of the Clinton administration. And I'm sure that the preparation for it, I don't know if it was based on your dissertation that you did, but um, the preparation for it, you know, happened many years before. And so we, we were think, talking about how um, it would be interesting to hear a generational perspective from you on what has shifted since Massacre of the Dreamers uh, and, you know, given, you know, Black Dove in 2016, given, you know, 45, President number 45 and the current administration, um, you know, what has shifted, what is still the same, uh, does, and does this political and social movement mean, moment mean anything different for mothers of color? Um, uh, I did live through um, the Nixon administration and through the Reagan administration, and I also survived the Bush senior and Bush <laughs> junior. And, um, you know, initially, a couple of months ago, people said, well, you know, you lived through Reagan. And I said, uh, this is not Reagan. 
and this yeah. is not Nixon, and this is not even Bush Sr. and Jr. Um, this is something very, very different, but it, it's, it's not something separate. What it is, it's a progression toward a particular type of economy that um, uh, uh, enormous amount of wealth that 1% has been working toward for decades. Mm. I went to um, the University of Chicago in, in the late 70s and got my master's degree in Latin American studies. I was the first of two graduates, a very new program at that time. Uh, just to put it in perspective, this was when the dictatorships were in full force in Latin America. So I was very interested. I didn't know if I was going to go into law. I did. I was writing poetry, um, but um, I never. I have never studied writing or creative writing. I wasn't an English major, or a Spanish major, or literature major. I I was very interested in what was happening in the world, and so. At that time, um, one of the professors that were available to us was, in fact, um, uh, Milton Friedman, who was a consultant for Pinochet, who was who had just who was in, in Chile at that time. This was me in my mid twenties at this point, and so um, what we are seeing right now is the as the, is the progression of Milton Friedman's economic plan. So we couldn't have had that before. It's more dis disastrous and monstrous for the majority of the people in this world because it's moved finally here to the belly of the beast. That's what I have to say as far as where we are right now. Um, so, and you know, when when it hit me, when, I, when everything was happening, I'm almost having like flashbacks. I went back to uh, a book that I recommend to people to read, which is um, uh, 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 it's uh, Naomi Klein's book on shock, shock and disaster. I'm now um, I just recommended it to Mother Jones. Uh, it came out in uh, 2011. She had, did a, a phenomenal job in recording the history of of, uh, of how this works. It's it's built on, dis on disaster and crises and a distraction of the population, which is what we're having. While um, anything that isn't nailed down can be privatized and will be, and that's what we're experiencing right now. When I began to write um, Massacre of the Dreamers, um, I so I eventually what I did was I didn't pursue law. I didn't pursue uh, a PhD. I wasn't interested in in, in uh, uh, going into academia per se. Began in, be, uh, as a writer, a creative writer, as an artist, and I, I do paint. I thought of myself if I was going to suffer and if I was going to uh, go through a life of marginal existence, I'd rather do that with my creativity than put myself through further uh, academic torture and or anything like that, so law school. <laughs> so I figured that's what, it, what would happen. I'd be a poor lawyer, so I may as well be a poor poet. So then I wrote um, the Miskiwa letters, and I'd, um, my book, Mas uh, My Father Was a Tulsa, came out. I went to, I uh, was invited to do a keynote address in Germany uh, with the German Association of, Association of Americans. At this time, just to put this in perspective for all of us, there is no Chicana theory, per se. We have uh, this bridge called My Back, and I'm very proud it was two Chicanas who edited that book and brought that to the surface um, about other women, not just black women that were responding to white feminists, but that there were other women, Native American and Latina and Asian and so on. So, uh, but, um, but there's no theory yet. In my generation, they're just starting to go into these doctorate programs. So um, I wrote the Miss Kiwala letters 
like in a vacuum. It was just me, my head, thinking about what has to be written. My father was a Tolta. So in the history of, of women's literature, what we first see is we'll see journals, we'll see letters, we'll see poetry. Uh, why? Because uh, you don't have to uh, take your eyes off the frijoles on the stove and the baby sleeping. And, you know, it's uh, everything that's expected of you as a woman in your family, you're doing and you're taking care of that. You're on the sly, you're keeping your witness and you're taking notes. So my generation, all of us start out as poets because of that, because it's efficient, it's uh, it's cheap, uh, it's not hard to have a piece of paper and a notepad, uh, you could do it anywhere, like I said, while the baby's taking a nap, and I did, and so um, I went to this, um, to do this, and in my discussions, I was talking about, the, you know, the Miskiwala letters was out, so I was talking about this, and in my discussions with these um, academics, where they're seeing the ideas behind the fiction and the poetry. Just theory is forming. It's forming as I speak. Um, Sandra Cisneros, who I used to, uh, at that time we read together everywhere, and I said to her, what happened was when we went to Germany was, um, they said, well, I said, well, one of these days I'm gonna write all of this down. And um, the Dean of American Studies at Bremen said, and the day that you do, we will accept it here as a formal dissertation. And that eventually, in years to come, became Massacre of the Dreamers. There was no internet. I had no financial support. I had no family support. I had no partner uh, to get through those years. And, but I had theory in my head. And so I had to figure out, how do I now validate um, what I know, what I experience, because you have to do that. You know that as a poet, you can say anything that you want, and it's true because you feel it, you experience it, it's your truth. You cannot do that, as you know, in academia. It has to be somebody else had to say, say it before you, but if you don't have theory, another Chicana hasn't said it, then you have to put it together somehow. And that's what ended up being Massacre of the Dreamers, and eventually, some years later, that was in the mid-'80s when I had that conversation with that dean, and it was, like I said, before internet, so I actually went back. I was living in Oakland, and um, I went back and wrote a letter. This, if you can imagine, back in the, write a letter, mail it to Germany <laughs> years and years later. No, weeks later, he writes back and says, go for it, because I, I thought about it. So I was saying, I mentioned Sandra, and, and there was Sheree Moraga, and Norma Larica, and these were, this was my crew. These were my friends, my neighbors. I was living next door, <laughs> you know, Ivan Yarovakana. This was my crew, so. I told them, I said, look, you know, this was asked, in, you know, and I don't really want to, I certainly don't want to write anything for academia, and I don't really write essays, and, you know, um, I uh, um, enjoyed writing uh, miscual letters. I'm a self-taught writer. I was just like, whoa, I wrote a novel, so there I have this novel. I wrote a second, I had already, right after that number, I wrote another novel. This is what I'm going to do, so how, this is a big switch to go. So I wrote this letter to this man in Germany, and I said, I will write this book, but I'm not going to write it for academia. I'm not going to write it for Germans. I'm going to write it for Chicanas. And in the book, Massacre of the Dreamers, the center figure, when you use the word I, which is the imperative I, um, I the I is other Chicanas. And anyone else is invited to listen in on it. Um, uh, 
20 years later, I, deter I thought I'll never do that again. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, actually getting it published, uh, defending it. I did have to defend it in Germany. All of that was just really very, very rough, but it happened and years have gone by. I'm very happy that it, it did go out there. Not only do Chicanas um, respond to it, but what I discovered uh, in the years to come is that other minority women in other countries, other women of color in other countries have used the book. Southern Italy and Southern Spain um, and uh, Southern Africa, all the South, Southern Africa, um, they have uh, um, told me it gave them permission. And once again, somebody said it. So, you know, someone said it, a Chicana said it in the United States. So they're able to now use this to make their own, um, their own theory and arguments. But 20 years went by, so it was a, I thought it was a good idea to update it. I thought, oh my God, all these uh, all these statistics, they must be so outdated. This must sound like something just from, for another generation, this must just sound like I'm just talking about, you know, prehistoric times for, for them about <laughs> feminism, you know? So I set upon updating it um, for uh, the University of New Mexico Press, uh, Labor of Love, and, um, the good news for me was that I didn't have to do that much work on it. Mm -hmm. The bad news for us is that I didn't have to do that much work mm -hmm. on it. So I was just going to say that, um, uh, first of all, just that story is very um, powerful, right? And, and I think that to be able to speak to you because you are embodying that theory in the flesh that, you know, for us in grad school, reading and all of this work, spoke to us in these really powerful ways and it made us realize that our realities matter, that our lives matter, that um, the knowledge production that is in inherent in, in our lives, in our stories, in our ancestors matters. So thank you. I mean, first of all, just thank you because like, you know, we all just feel it, you know, uh, viscerally that if it weren't for that generation you know, to t telling the stories and recognizing that our life stories matter, that we can produce knowledge about our communities and for our communities, we would never be sitting around this beautiful table having this conversation. So for that, I have to say thank you. Um, and to hear that the way that that genealogy was, you know, really, really empowering for me. Um, and then to comment on, on what you just said, you know, which is devastating. You know, uh, I had a feeling that's where you were going, right? That I didn't have to change much, yeah. which is a great thing as a writer, as a researcher. Okay, so it's not as much labor, but then that, what is implicated in that, right? Um, because the, 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 and I think we feel this. I mean, there's, there's this, we are in a political moment where I think there's a kind of visibility uh, ever present because of social media, you know, and the immediacy of, of knowledge and accessing that knowledge. Uh, and so you see stories, you see videos of, of violence, um, and you see people telling their stories. And so there's almost, it's almost like we're at this moment where it's all available. And I think that people are starting to not just witness, but to respond. So perhaps, you know, and that is like in the revolutionary hope, right? In that like promise of hope of liberation that we hope that in that this moment, things in 20 years might be different, right? And I think that's why we do the work that we do. Um, and that you're committed to this work is I think, you know, amazing, right? And it's again, like a testament to to all of us into this discipline, you know, if that's what we can call it or this work that we, that we are all committed to. Um, 
so I think that for us as mothers, though, you I mean you having lived everything that you've lived through, you know, I, I don't know if there's like a, like, what do we impart? You know, what do we impart not only to our children, but to our students and to our communities? What, how can we impart, you know, and this knowledge to, to them? Well, I'll tell you, I'm, um, you know, I'm never the one to speak to, to, ha I, I don't have the Horatio Alger story. You, every little girl's going to grow up and live her dream and you go to college and you're going to be, you know, have a brilliant career because the system that we live in isn't built for everybody to have that. But also historically, because of uh, colonialism, because of racism, we are still living those times. Um, uh, 20 years later, we did have a moment. We had our quote unquote first black president, Democrat president. But we have to understand that the system that we live in, civilization that we live in, didn't happen in 20 years. It happened in thousands of years, in many, um, many um, uh, centuries. There's also a very right-wing movement happening in Europe at this time. Uh, there's an old expression uh, when uh, the U.S. has a cold, Mexico gets pneumonia. Well, when, as you refer to, uh, number 45 got elected, Mexico got pneumonia almost overnight. So we don't live in a vacuum. We live in in this on this in this world and this planet. And so 20 years, all all that is to say that in 20 years, don't expect a big change. I don't know what to expect in the next few years at the rate that we're going right now, to be quite honest with you. But what I did say earlier was that this is a progression of, 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 um, of a certain power that has been moving. They might get sidetracked a little bit by Clinton, a little bit. It wasn't big. The Clintons were by no means, you know, it makes me laugh to hear like Rush Limbaugh call them the left or Clinton the left, like that, that whoever was a possibility. So they were centrist at the at the best, on their best day, they, they were centrist. So we might have a minute of reprieve, had a minute of reprieve with Obama, a minute. But then they come back because they have been moving very progressively. They're very powerful. By they, I mean the you know the one percent, the wealthiest in the world that are moving in that direction. And so, um, what do we impart? We impart the reality. I am the very happy, proud mother, grandmother of a girl now, of a granddaughter. She's nine years old. My son is uh, working with uh, youth uh, in Chicago. Youth, mostly youth of color. He's very, very uh, conscientious of everything that we're talking about. Um, he's very proud of his mother as a feminist, and he's imparting now the lessons that he learned at home that for a minute there he also deviated from, but he's now proud of the fact and teaching those things to his daughter. The whole, th you, you know, he's in jiu-jitsu with her. It's like, you can do anything anybody can do. Defend yourself. When a, a kid gets bullied with her, he's like teaching her how to punch him back and, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. I was like, uh, he, uh, no different than if he had been ha had a boy. And, and that's part of having grown up with me. I saw me defend him as a single mother um, in Chicago. I hate to use like the expressions of the streets in Chicago. So we are making our little baby steps. We cannot, should not lose track of what we have to do. This is who we are. Uh, we are not going to permit ourselves to become um, invisible or to become victims. We cannot do that. We cannot lose faith and we cannot uh, 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 
allow ourselves to be ignorant and um, not be informed and not be in community. I think this group that uh, the you know Chicana Mothers Group and doing the work that you're doing is absolutely necessary. You can't live in isolation. I didn't. To, I did a lot because um, I did live in isolation a lot because I didn't have those peers at the time. Uh, the women that I was close to didn't have children at that time. They were feminists or they might be Chicanas, but they didn't have, they weren't raising um, children. And so I was pretty much the only one that had a child for a long time in the in the circles so that I would be in. Um, the very first time I met Dolores Huerta, and I now have the great pleasure of, of, of uh, being a friend with her and her daughters. This was about uh, 30 years ago. My son was three years old. First time I met her, I was in a, on a panel with uh, Malks. And of course, I'm a single mom. Of course, I'm chasing my son around the table because I'm a single mom and I don't have anywhere to leave him. And, you know, Dolores, who I didn't know, had no less than 11 children herself said, oh, this reminds me of of, you know, me with my children, when they were, that's one. I was thinking, well, her children are really grown. No, they weren't. She actually ended up having a, a, a child a little younger than my son or around my son's age. So I, I don't know where the 11 were at that moment. But I always remember her saying how much it reminded, I reminded her of her, is that you have, sometimes you have to have the children with you to do the work that you have to do. So we'll, we'll do that. But now you have more support to be able to take care and, and, um, and to, uh, you know, be supportive and babysit, which is absolutely necessary, but also to have the empathy of somebody who has made those choices or not have those choices. But it's going to be very, very difficult. I do um, a lot of work internationally, and I talk to women of color around the world, and it breaks my heart that money is being cut off because of the pro-choice decisions that are being made by this administration, because I have seen those groups. I have spoken... In Kazakhstan some years ago, they're, they're uh, right in the crossroads of body trafficking, the NGOs that are working, and then um, in Egypt and in South America, and just see the hardships of women in very repressive societies in which um, they are going to suffer, and they're already, as we speak, already suffering with these funds being cut off. So our administration isn't only only hurting our, our women domestically and our women of color and our women who are underemployed or unemployed. Uh, they don't have to be undocumented. All of us are marginalized at this time to some degree. I'm moving toward the age of uh, being considered a senior citizen. There's many uh, people of my generation that we don't have medical, proper medical care and, and you know, communities that are being supportive in that way. So, but it's, uh, but it's an interna international community that's being affected. And so uh, all I can say as far as the next 20 years and what we have right now is we cannot, we cannot give up hope and we cannot stop. I thought that I would. I didn't believe that this would happen. And I thought that I would. I thought, I joked about it. There's places that I went and I spoke at last November and I said, if so-and-so gets in, to office, I'm going to voluntarily give up my citizenship to someone that doesn't have it. They can have my passport, and I'm leaving. This is what I actually thought I would do. And what happened was, after I got over the shock that he did get in, was I decided there's nowhere for me to go. It's not that I want to be here and be so brave and speak out, although you you have to be brave to speak out because there's no, there's no enemy too small for the kind of administration that we have and the place that we're going. 
it is brave work that you're doing. So, but I also know that going to Mexico or becoming one of the many refugees and immigrants that are going to go to Canada, or where else am I going to go in South America or Central America? Or am I going to go to France? You know, there's no place to go. So I may as well stay here and work in my backyard. So we have to uh, know that we have to stick together without any illusions of how much we're going to do. And I do believe that every day that you get up and you take a deep breath and you say, I am present here in my life, and I'm and look in the mirror and say, and I'm beautiful, and, I, and I'm strong, and I'm going to do this, um, and I have people who love me, and I have people who are counting on me. We've got to have that kind of daily mantra uh, is very helpful because it is really right now about taking it a day at a time. And I think you, you answer, kind of partially answer the question we had about um, kind of keeping that hope alive, especially as like a lot of us are raising young children. Um, and I'm going to ask the, ask the question anyway, just in case you want to contextualize it somehow. Um, but some of us in this group are single mothers. Others in the group are raising only, um, only children, like one child. And some of us are raising boys of color generationally this is often different from our own upbringing with either two parents or multiple siblings can you expand more on the costs and benefits of raising a family unit so different from the one that you grew up in well i think the idea of the the single child in any in any time in any generation is always a question let's keep in mind in china that was a law for a long time there's a whole country with a million children that was very different from this country that because of their uh, fears of overpopulation for a very, very long time only had single children. It was a very different society. Also, they also had child care. So it was very different. I think that children have to have peers. So I think only in the sense that if you don't have an ex a large extended family, it's very good to create uh, in your life, if it's possible, uh, uh, activities and things that you can do so that those single children do feel they're growing up with somebody. Um, uh, it's it's uh, it, it's there's no secret formula of what's better, what's worse. In my opinion, um, I. Um, uh, did make a conscious decision not to have a second child, even as a single mother. And I did go through a period in which, uh, when my son was about five, six, seven years old, in which I thought he really should have a sibling, even if, but, you know, I was moving from place to place in this country, accepting residencies to teach. It was always wherever I was invited, the, for the same reason that I was invited as a distinguished visiting professor of color or woman, feminist, was the same reason I wasn't, retained and and invited to leave and they'll bring the next one in where you never have any real influence there and so they're off we would pack and we'd be moving somewhere else so i didn't really have the stability i didn't have a home and i certainly didn't have extended family that i would be able to count on to be able to bring a second child into my life i did think about that and I don't know. You'll never know, really. Uh, sometimes in families, uh, children are so different from each other, they don't have a closeness, or there, there other dynamics arise. So I don't think there really is a, a particular answer to that. Probably the biggest uh, differential would be is we have women now, uh, more women now, that value higher education or better read, read, better read than we used to be. The internet certainly offers that opportunity, even if you don't have a, 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 a physical library at home, even if that's not the biggest thing for you. Um, 
uh, that we're we're now raising children that are much more sophisticated, certainly more sophisticated in terms of the media that we have, the internet. You know, my nine-year-old granddaughter knows about Instagram. She does. She's not allowed to have uh, her own computer, and she's she can be supervised on laptops at home, and she's um, doesn't have a phone. Uh, although I know that that can be blocked and regulated, so she's not uh, doesn't free have free access, but she does talk to a lot of people and see a lot of people and has a lot of information in the world that um, you didn't have and for sure I didn't have. So I think those differentials are much greater than um, how we came about. I will say on a personal level. I, um, having had the background that I had growing up, I grew up in a very, um, uh, uh, my, my mother worked in a factory, she always had two or three jobs, uh, not with very great uh, material access to things, and my mother didn't think that they were important for me, even in terms of nutrition. So I had a very uh, difficult childhood and growing up. So when I became a mother and had learned about nutrition and learned about um, reading to your child and all these kind of things that I learned going to community college, um, that's what I brought to, to my child. So that's what I wanted to do. And yet I have heard stories from other people and this is also, so you never know, somebody who didn't have that and therefore doesn't feel that it's important for their child to have that. So I think that's probably the biggest difference of what will, what will you know, affect a child is, is uh, not always uh, the family dynamic, but uh, what they're being exposed to. And um, I think kind of building on this, um, these ideas um, of what, what you're discussing, um, kind of like the next, another part of that, of um, child, raising, child raising or how it's, it's different, um, how it has been different generationally or how um, our immigrant parents raised us um, versus those of us who are born and raised in the U.S. as Chicanas and now having children ourselves and, you know, how that is different. Um, and I think something that goes that reminds me of the next question is um, self care. And in terms of um, self care, it um, hasn't been that's something that my mother, who's a Mexican immigrant woman, um, had didn't. So when I grew up, the way that she mothered, um, she was not able to have self-care or, you know, even this idea of community care, which is similar, you know, relatives or friends or community members, you know, taking care of each other because, you know, she was, she's poor. Uh, we come from a poor family. Um, I have four siblings. So there was five of us and um, she didn't have time to take care of herself. So my, the next question is um, what's your kind of take on that self-care or community care? And, um, and what do you recommend for uh, Chicanas and women of color mothers? You know, how can we kind of do this self-care where it's maybe for us, it's been internalized as a selfish kind of thing because in our families, for a lot of us, this wasn't modeled or kind of taken into consideration or the way that we do or that information we have access to uh, as Chicanas, U.S. born Chicanas. Well, I'm going to start at the very end of it, and the and the the word selfishness um, 
you know, where we think, where we still think, and I know there's a lot of work and a lot of awareness being promoted uh, now around <laughs> um, mental health issues in terms of self-care. And when you say selfish, we're, uh, what first comes to mind is when you are feeling bad and you're feeling bad for very good reasons, I wrote about that in Massacre of the Dreamers, is when you go out in the world and you get you know, slammed at, you know, in your department or at your job, if you're working in a restaurant, if it's the boss, if it's somebody on the bus and the train, and then by the time you get home and you just want to throw yourself in your in a dark room and close the door and not talk to anybody, what we call, what we call selfish and working class families and families of color, and very specifically with Latinos, is when you allow yourself to feel down, when you allow yourself, and we're now realizing that many of our mothers did suffer from depression and clinical depression. I now look back at my own mother and I realize now that I inherited my depression from my mother and my son has, and he just noticed it recently. Now my son, speaking of this very private information, I know that he, he he's totally supportive of us sharing our stories because of that, because we do believe it's important to have this communication and he had real serious depression is what led him to commit the, the crime that he did was um, he just saw me go through a period of, of depression, clinical depression. A lot of it has to do with what's happening right now with the world that just, it, it, it just hit me so badly. But, um, but other things that are going on that affect a lot of us as well, it affects me in my life. And he was stunned. And he said, and he was raised just with me. And he said, I have never seen you like this, mama. I have never seen you this way. And I, and he said, this must be where I get my depression, but I've never seen you. I never allowed my child ever in my little two family home. He'd never seen me go through clinical depression. And I have been throughout my life where I have very dark, dark, dark periods in my life. So when we talk about selfish, that's where, we, where, where we're told that we're selfish. You're a mother. You can't allow that. You can't, you know, you have to come home and feed your children. You have to have a clean house. You have to be there doing the homework with them. How dare you go to spend the whole day in bed? Oh, you're going to spend the weekend in bed? Or you're going to come home and not cook dinner? Or you're not going to stop at the grocery store? So that when I hear selfish, I think that's what we're told. And I actually, when I went through a period of, 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 uh, of uh, uh, clinical depression some years ago, now I was, or my son was already in college, I had a childhood friend said to me, well, I can't afford who, who didn't have as good a fortune as I did. I had a nice position at that time, and she didn't, you know, she, she didn't, and she said, well, I can't afford to be depressed. I have to go to work. And I hear people still say that to each other. I can't afford to be. I can't stay home. You know, I, I wish I could just stay home and paint and write, you know, is what I do. I stay home and paint. Nobody's paying me to do that. That's a choice that I made. And we talk about self-care. That's a choice that I made. I am not making that money. I don't have the benefits or the pension plan either, but my self-care is to allow myself to be myself. Mm -hmm. And myself is writing the books that I have. I haven't put out as many books as I have in my lifetime because I had a full-time secure position. That was a trade-off. So when, I, when we start talking about self-care, I'm already talking about 
big decisions that we make in our life. What's the life that I want to lead? How do I want to live my life? And so we break away from those patterns of what's expected of us. Now, we live in a country that has a lot of luxuries, and so younger women already know about pedicures and, and manicures, and they know about spas and things like that, and, you know, going to the beauty shop that your mother didn't allow herself, and I occasionally allow myself now during these economic times, but they're unfamiliar with them. And certainly my granddaughter, who's nine years old, knows about getting her little nails painted, about having her bows in her hair. And so there's teaching about things to self-care. But I would say the bottom self-care is looking out for being true to yourself. That's where the self-care comes from. And if that's what you feel like, and if that's who you feel like being, and self-care to you means Saturday means I'm going to go have breakfast with my comadres because they they understand what's going on and I have to find somebody to take care of their children and I'm not going to go and run and do a billion things. Or like my mom used to do was after in the factory all day, she put me and her to clean the entire house. It was just, it was like a soldier's life, you know, that there's no, no going around it. You're going to go to the laundromat. You're going to be ironing that whole weekend. You're going to be cleaning the house for the men and the family. Well, I don't do that. I do it for myself. And I know men, and I'm very privileged to know men, including my son, many Latinos who will do that now. So that's the positive side, too, is that we have taught our sons how to uh, have uh, uh, that equity in their homes and to respect those things. And so we don't have to worry about that as much because if you, if you have a partner, and if it's a male partner, or if you have an older son, or if you have a, a, a male friend, it's okay if they take the kids out to the park instead of just saying, well, this is only, I would never ask my compadre. I would only ask my comadre to do this. The compadre might do that too. So I think about self-care and I hear this term and people say to me when I was going through this, um, this recent bout where I just said, everybody, I'm not going to make it. I'm going down. When I saw this happen with this, um, with this administration just the first week, I did a Facebook video about um, about uh, what I already foresaw happening. I decided, in terms of self-care, this time I'm not going to keep it to myself. Because i always very ashamed of it, very private about it. Can't let anybody see you feel bad, sad. You don't want to share your troubles. All the things our mothers taught us. Nobody wants to hear your problems. Nobody wants to see you cry. And this time I decided, I'm just letting it, I'll just start crying. If I have to cry, I'm just going to go through this. And uh, so to me, self-care starts with, with that, which, which is allowing yourself to be you and to and to reach out to people and to accept other people being there for you. That's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Creating community and, and, and building in that way is so important. And we want to be mindful of your time. Yes, we know that we, you have to get you to the next engagement. And um, so I thought with our last question, you know, we might let you choose which part of the question you might want to answer because they were all, they're all related. Um, moving in the direction of, you know, what might your next writing project be or what are you reading um, or what do you want others to be writing about? Like, what do you want to impart to those of us who are, you know, in the beginning stages of our careers or of our writing lives? Uh, so I think any sort of combination of those three areas, if you want to comment on before we have to get going. 
Well, I just recommended, um, I did recommend Naomi Klein's book. It's worth right. reading again. There's also a documentary on it. It's really almost surprising that uh, she was uh, allowed to live. She does not blame, put, uh, I reread it more carefully. She's not uh, putting the blame directly on certain administrations, so she was careful the way we have to be careful about certain claims that we make. I would re recommend that book. I have judged a couple of main competitions recently, so I was reading many, many, many books. Some that were not published yet. I can't say what, I cannot say yet what uh, what competitions they were because they have the winners have not been announced. But um, as I've read about, I went through at least 30 wow. published um, uh, uh, memoirs and uh, and then with another, um, another award, uh, many unpublished and the winner will be published. I'm very happy about that. But um, uh, so my reading time went there what I'll be working on once again as I said you have to write what you have to write and I'm doing something that I didn't think I would ever do and that is uh, things that I'm writing I'm actually publishing them on Facebook and so I'm, I'm, I'm writing some of my reflections things are moving so quickly from day to day that I really don't feel like I have the time to wait and sit on it for a year and a half and, and give my response to what is actually happening right now because now activism and writing is more urgent than Ever. So that's what I'm working on. And again, I can't stress too much the need for us to create communities wherever they are. And if it is on Facebook or social media, or if it's the communities in your neighborhood or in your building or at your in your department or this particular community that's able to use, you know, Skype or, you know, um, WhatsApp or something else that you're able to video chat with somebody, I think that's absolutely essential for us to keep our sanity and to keep grounded. Thank you, Anna, for, for your time. Um, we we can completely agree with you. You know, we, we do this podcast. We're trying to, we, we create, we're creating an anthology called uh, Chicana Motherworks Sin Madres No Hay Revolución. We were amazed at the amount of submissions that we received, beautiful, empowering, strong. We're thinking of different ways to use our, our website also as a, as a way for people to tell stories. And so it's been wonderful to be able to exchange in this way and we can go on for hours, but um, but at least we, we can end with a with a thank you, with a gracias, Dr. Sokamati. Thank you so much. Gracias, thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening and we're looking forward to the next podcast. And just as a quick reminder, you can follow us on iTunes and SoundCloud. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review.